Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with the magnificent Hugh McKay, who is an author, a columnist and uh, an incredibly influential voice in Australian policymaking and uh, culture. I had the delight of talking to him and we had a really interesting conversation. Among, th- among other things, we spoke about his new books, which he's publishing a pair of books at the same time, both a nonfiction and a fiction one, uh, where the themes interlock with one another. We had a chat about that about this new way of of publishing and uh, about society, about love, about kindness, about ageing, about legacy. And I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. It was a wonderful conversation. Uh, You may have noticed that I'm a little behind on releasing Tea with Alice's. That is in part because there is construction work next door. So I'm finding it difficult to find quiet enough time uh, to record these introductions to the podcasts that I have banked up in my back catalogue. If you want to have a look at what I'm saying on a day-to-day basis, head over to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. And I would like to thank everybody who supports me there. Uh, It's an incredible thing to have, particularly in such times as these um, where, you know, so many people are really struggling and suffering to have a stable base of people who support my work has been um, incomparably an incomparable privilege I don't really know how to say how grateful I am for it but it it is an enormous part of my ability to live and to do the work that I love to do so thank you very much um if you want to see me in Sydney I'll be doing a solo show an hour-long solo show on the 27th of November at the Comedy Store Uh, There will be no two-drink minimum. It will just be normal ticket price, and I'm hoping to live stream it um, in order to make up the shortfall of of that. It's sort of because they can't fill it out. They wanted me to do a two-drink minimum, and I said no because I don't really like the idea that comedy should be subservient to the bar, and I don't really like that kind of hidden tax on people who pay their ticket price and then get told that they have to spend an extra whatever it is, $10.00. Uh, but do come along and I will let you know if I get them to agree to let me do a stream out and I'll give you the details there on my Patreon, on my Twitter at alliterative, uh, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. That's enough of me rambling. I will let you get on with listening to this podcast with the wonderful Hugh McKay. You're having tea with Alice. So, uh, who are you and what are you drinking? I'm Hugh McKay and I'm drinking water, Alice. Yeah. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. And well, pre tea, I like to call it. Yes, yeah, pre tea, that's right. And in fact, if it was 10 o'clock at night, I'd still be drinking water because a few years ago, alcohol was banned from my diet. Because oh. I, oh. I have a diseased esophagus. So all sorts of restrictions are now imposed on what I can eat and drink, and alcohol is off the list. Two cups of coffee a week. Wow. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm not a coffee drinker, nor am I an alcohol drinker, but I feel like those are things that when people have them in their lives, they become more than just the, the thing itself. They become sort of symbolic of a, a social thing or, Yes, absolutely right. Yeah, they're, they're, both, they're both metaphors for something. When people talk about not being able to function without coffee, obviously they could function without coffee, but 
uh, what they're what they're saying is well they're admitting something aren't they they're admitting something about themselves some kind of vulnerability or uh, neediness that they have in the case of coffee it's usually not social but it is it is some ritual to do with well if they're if they're on their way to work it's to do with the queue and the toting the takeaway cup yes um, well, particularly those very milky coffees that's very um i don't know there's something freudian about that like the warm milk of the mother like <laughs> i could overanalyze it yeah but i think it also you know walking around with your your disposable coffee cup although we hope increasingly recyclable coffee cup is a bit like the modern replacement for wandering around with a cigarette in your hand and the way people talk about their first cup of coffee is exactly the way I recall people in the past talking about their first cigarette. Which is, that is an interesting thing. You were told by a medical professional that you couldn't have these things in your life anymore. What was your reaction? Did you kick against it or were you just, all no, right? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, I didn't drink at all, didn't drink any alcohol at all until I was in, well into my 20s. And I never drank heavily and never alone. <laughs> so um, at one stage I was told, oh, you should only have a couple of drinks a week. Well, it's actually easier to have nothing than to have a couple of drinks a week. So it was no, no, and, and I'm not a I'm not a coffee devotee at all. I may I may if I'm drinking a hot drink, it's usually tea. And, and tea's okay. That's all right. Do you find um I'm a big tea drinker, as the name of the podcast might indicate, and I, I don't drink coffee. I found it odd in Melbourne to be a non-coffee drinker because the, the whole city's culture rot rotates or revolves around coffee so much. People have mm. simultaneously, I think uh, it was David Mitchell said, they, they feign simultaneously a, a greater need for and a greater, like, snobbery about coffee. Yes. I must have a yes. coffee, but all coffee is garbage, that kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, well, I'm old enough to remember when no one drank coffee. I mean, you know, there was a thing called coffee essence or something. Uh, and then mm, around about the 1960s, I suppose, instant coffee arrived on the market and gradually a coffee culture developed. More in Melbourne than in Sydney, it's true. Um, and now uh, it's overtaken tea, so that's a big change. In the same way as wine has overtaken beer, we've we've gradually shifted in these little cultural practices. Which is interesting because I think the shift is marked by a, a sense of ourselves as increasingly sophisticated, but I'm not sure that it's linear in that way. No, no, it's much more complicated than that, but it is the way... We like to portray uh, this 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 culture shift. Yes, look how sophisticated. Look how European we're becoming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is, and then sort of the counter um, the counterbalancing oppositional virtue of, oh, I'm just a beer drinker. I'm a straightforward person. Oh yes, yeah, that's right. Yes, and and mocking mocking people who are coffee dependent uh, is similar. Yes. Yeah. So you you talk you mentioned before or you said before 
Uh, it's more complicated than that. That's something that I think we share in the work that we do. It's talking about things that are more complicated than they might at first appear to be. Um, you've just written two books. Yes, well, they they were published simultaneously. It's a bit of a bit of an odd story. It makes it sound as though I wrote one with my right hand and one with my left hand, and they they finished together and came out together. It wasn't like that at all. I, I first drafted the novel, uh, The Question of Love, about four years ago, but it's got a very odd structure and it took a lot of work to get it uh, flowing the way I wanted it to. By the time I had it ready, I was starting work on the new nonfiction, The Inner Self, and the publisher said, look, actually, there's a bit of thematic synergy between these two books. The novel is a bit like uh, a case study of some of the themes in the inner self. So their recommendation was they would hold the novel and bring it out uh, literally as a companion uh, on the same day as the nonfiction. So it, it's an interesting experiment. I don't yet know whether it's successful or not, but um, it's a very odd thing to be talking about two books at once. Well, yeah, there are these <laughs> these themes that run through them. And I guess I'm I'm guessing just from the way that I work that you know the one one thing that you write follows another that they tend to be logical extensions of one another or counter arguments or for me with my shows it's often I'll answer a question or a problem that I think yes. was existing in the first show so after Savage yeah. which I thought oh you know this is about a mum everybody has a mum or a relationship with a mother figure um, it's too it's I want to prove, like, obviously I can move people's emotions at, in a comedy show and make it funny and, and talk about these sad things, but it's maybe too relatable. Maybe I'm, yes. just hit, maybe I'm just hitting a button. Maybe I'm just being manipulative because I know that everyone has this experience. Um, yes. So The Resistance was about this unique house that I grew up in with my grandmother and all the strays that she gathered and yes. I thought no one has this experience. So can I make an emotionally affecting but also comedy show that isn't relatable at all and kind of point <laughs> counterpoint like that. Um, do you uh, find that that is the way you write or do you have a different approach? Well, certainly with my nonfiction, when I look back, I think there is a kind of continuity about it. I think, I mean, certainly the inner self uh, is a kind of reaction to the fact that I've been implying for years in the in the nonfiction I've been writing, which is mainly social analysis, but a bit of ethics and a bit of uh, a, a bit of communication, a bit of psychology, um, but broadly social analysis. I've been by implication I've been denying that there is an inner self because, <laughs> because I've been talking always about our social identity and the and the and the sense of self that we present to each other. And I've always said if you want to know who you are. Don't look in the mirror. Look into the faces of the people who love you, the people you work with, the people you live amongst, people who put up with you. That, that's who you are. Your, your identity is a social construct, which, is, of course, is true. Uh, but I finally realised, with a bit of prodding from the publisher, I finally realised that there was this whole untold story about the other side of self, that there is an inner sense of self, which is... The more I looked into it, 
And even since I've written the book and talked about it, I've become kind of clearer about this. The more I think that our social identity, which is the construct we all have, that you know, here is Alice, a female, a comedian, uh, a daughter, a sister, um, a neighbour, you know, all sorts of things that you are that are part of how you are seen in the world. That's that's your social identity. But if you look deeply inside, and that's all about independence. It's all about how you are unique and different. Uh, and and that's important. It's particularly important. I, I think you're getting into deep water, Alice, but I think it is Welcome more Welcome to this podcast. <laughs> I think it is more typical of people in what we could broadly call the first half of life to be much more concerned about their place in the world, uh, which relationships they want to nurture and which they don't, how much they want to be like a member of their family and how much they don't, where they want to live, who they want to live with, do they want to have kids, what sort of job do they want to do. It's all very external, very important. I'm not not, uh, diminishing the significance of it, but it is all about how am I different? How am I special? How am I independent? Now, at some point, triggered perhaps by a midlife crisis, triggered perhaps by a pandemic uh, or by some other positive or negative life-changing event, a relationship breakdown, a bereavement, a retrenchment, all these sorts of things that cause us to become a bit more introspective. It seems to me we do get to a point where we say, well, actually, there is more to me than all this stuff that's visible to the world. I'm not only my social identity. Now, the great paradox of this, it seems to me, is when we start to go deeply into ourselves and say, well, who is the essential Alice? Who is the essential Hugh? Not what is the difference between Alice and Hugh, but when we go deeply inside us, who are we really? And and it seems to me that's when we encounter this idea of our common humanity. But what we discover is that Although the most interesting things about Alice Fraser are all the ways that she's different from everyone else, the most significant thing about Alice Fraser is that she's a human, that she's a member of a particular kind of species which is essentially social, uh, that, 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 that she and I belong to a species in which individuals are completely hopeless in isolation. We are utterly dependent upon each other. We need families, we need friendship circles, we need communities, neighborhoods, etc. We need choirs and book clubs and all kinds of football teams, all kinds of ways in which uh, we, we express the fact that we are not in the end at our essence, we are not independent at all. We are highly interdependent and we all exist in this kind of shimmering web of interconnectedness. Therefore, this is, this is, this is the bit that I think is the most important step in the argument. Therefore, isn't it lucky, well, it's not lucky, it's an evolutionary certainty, of course, that given the fact that we belong to a species in which cooperation will be our essential characteristic, that we'll we'll have to get along with each other because we need each other, like many other species on the planet, 
Therefore, the one quality that we all possess, which equips us to be that kind of person, is our capacity for compassion. And I think that's a really remarkable thing about human beings, that all of us have the capacity to show kindness and respect, compassion towards total strangers, uh, towards people we don't actually like much and, and could never agree with. Yet, you know, even perhaps members of our own extended family that we don't like and don't agree with, yet we can treat them as members of the family and total strangers we meet on a bus uh, we can treat respectfully and kindly, especially if they have something they want to share with us. I, I think this is this is what's really spectacular about humans. Now, that doesn't mean we do it all the time, but that we have this capacity for this particular kind of love. We're, 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 we're loving creatures. We're, you know, if, what are we born to do? We're born to love. We're born to be part of this functioning species and, and love in all its manifestations, romantic love, um, the love of friendship, familial love, etc. but also this very particular kind of essential human love, which curiously enough is not about emotion at all. It's not about affection. It's, uh, it, Samuel Johnson said, very nailed the whole thing, of course, as he was capable of doing in one smart sentence, we are capable of kindness even when we're not capable of fondness. And that's that's the, the human essence. And by the way, in the pandemic, I think that's what we've seen on display. We've seen, of course, people, some people are not playing by the rules, but generally speaking in Australia, there's been this mass demonstration of our capacity for compassion. We're doing this for each other. Yes, certainly. I think that's that's true with the occasional odd kick in the step. I think that idea of a kind of um, a love that is given to an individual um, but not directed at an individual, I, I think that's yes. a fascinating idea. The idea yes. that you, it's a little bit, um, it makes me think a little bit of uh, Darcy in Pride and Prejudice to go back to like a really weird reference that just occurred to me which is he is um he behaves properly because he's proud of himself not yes. in order to make the people around him feel good um yes. that just yes. that distinction of of an expression of kindness as something that you want to feel rather than as something that you you must feel as something that you're subject to you're not you know i i think it's a particularly, I mean, gender is obviously always something difficult to talk about and particularly in the modern times, but it's a particularly female problem, not just for women, but a peculiarly female, maybe predominantly female problem, excessive empathy, where you care too much uh, and you don't want to hurt someone's feelings and hurting them hurts you and yeah. you end up with uh, the, the worst resultant of that can be a kind of a moral cowardice where you won't say something that needs to be said because you could feel how much it would hurt them and so you can't bear yes. to do it. And that is a kindness that becomes selfishness because you can't bear yes. to do the injury that is necessary. Whereas yes. if you have this kind of more detached, benevolent love, you can behave in these 
truly generous ways, things that are not just reflections of some inner tenderness or pain that you have, uh, a desire to soothe this wound that you feel when other people hurt. You yes. can actually go, well, what's the, what's the correct thing to do? What's the right thing to do? What's the actually kind thing to do? Rather mm. than just, mm. oh, I couldn't bear to tell them I'll yes. never go out with them or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, and so if you're if you adopt if you embrace the mental discipline of compassion as a non-emotional form of love, then indeed, yes, if you want to tell someone you're not going to go out with them anymore, that can be done kindly. That can be done respectfully. You can fire someone in a way that is still kind and respectful, showing that kindness and respect simply because they are human, you know, not not because they appeal to you or because, you know, you, you've, you've got some uh, outpouring of this, this kind of empathic thing that you're going, but just because they're humans. And the only way we can build cohesive and harmonious neighbourhoods, communities, cities, nations, is by adopting, by, by exercising this capacity that we all have. Now, I, I think it is very important just to go on uh, by the way, there's a there's a, a lovely little quote in uh, Proust about uh, nuns. Uh, an observation I can't remember the exact quote, but the essence of it was that that these nuns were completely unemotional, completely matter of fact, quite tough in the way they dispensed their charity. Uh, and Proust described this as the pure face of. Oh, this was the face of pure goodness. Uh, that it had no no emotional attachment, no complications of the heart. This is just how we have to be because uh, we are committed to being compassionate. Now, uh, this doesn't mean we're doormats. Uh, in fact, quite the reverse. You know, I think this is the ultimate freedom, the freedom to be a compassionate person. But it is demanding uh, and, and it is a discipline. And so I think an important part of this whole story is time for yourself, time to indulge yourself, to recharge the batteries, replenish your resources for the demanding work of being a human. Uh, so I think every day, you know, we need to meditate or read or walk or swim or sing or do something that we do for us uh, that, that equips us. You know, I don't think that's a self-indulgence. I think that's another act. Yeah, maintenance, exactly. It's an act of, it's part of the act of kindness towards other people that will restore our patience and our capacity to go on being compassionate. Yeah, I think that's interesting. A, count, a counterpoint, or maybe possibly counterpoint, I'm not sure, complicating factor. There's a, an interesting story about psychoanalysis and the idea, the sort of originating theories of the idea that there was an inner self. And I think perhaps you mean something slightly differently, but one of one of the anecdotes that came out of that period of people sort of going wild and, and discovering psychoanalysis and uncovering all their deep, dark urges and, and expressing them, this idea that you weren't fully actualized unless you expressed some inner hidden part of yourself. Uh, and it, 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 they did this practice at a nunnery and the whole nunnery basically collapsed with all these nuns suddenly uh, realizing that they had needs um, and descending into chaos. Uh, I feel like there is a discourse in the modern world, particularly about um, 
about selfhood that can be destructive. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Well, we're coming we're coming to a stage in our cultural evolution. I, I was about to say we're coming to the end of a stage, but I don't think we're quite. I don't think the end is in sight. But we are coming to uh, a very mature stage of a period of rampant individualism. And by the way, I think psychoanalysis has been a contributor to this, uh, you know, emphasising how important our inner life is and how we've got to get right down to the root cause of every smile or frown. Well, the, the um, inner self can't just be inside. It has to be expressed and articulated. Otherwise, you are not a fully realised person. And yes. ideally, you can express it and articulate it by buying this hat. Um. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that, well, that's right. And that, and and another another social movement that contributed, I think, to the rise of individualism is the happiness industry. You know, this idea that we are all entitled to personal happiness that that's the default position for humans. So it's appropriate to pursue your own happiness. And there, you know, there are a spate of books around promoting all this and saying, you know, chop the people out of your life who don't bring you happiness, all this sort of stuff. I think this is extremely antisocial, extremely destructive of social cohesion and social harmony, because it, it does seem to me, well, for, I mean, we could talk all day about happiness, but in the modern interpretation of the word we we think of it as an emotional state particularly associated with pleasure and the idea that that would be our default position is approximately the most the single most misleading thing you could ever say to anyone and especially the most misleading thing you could ever say to children because obviously happiness is a meaningless concept in the absence of sadness i mean we have a we have a spectrum of emotions available to us and every point on that spectrum is as valid as every other point and every point on the spectrum has something to teach us about who we are and no point on the spectrum would make sense without the context of all the others. So uh, this idea that we're going to privilege happiness or any emotion. I mean, if you're going to be absolutely logical and say, well, I'm going to pursue happiness, well, then the first step would be to try to find some things to do that would make you really sad so you can then understand <laughs> what happiness is. I mean, it's ridiculous. The whole thing is logically absurd, but it's psychologically dangerous and culturally dangerous because it does mean... We, we set, particularly with kids, we set them up for the expectation that life is going to be all beautiful and, and, and pleasure is, you know, we must seek pleasure and avoid pain and happiness is what you should feel. And if you're not feeling happy, you know, when, when you see a child crying and, and a parent or particularly a grandparent <laughs> saying, oh, come on, give us a smile, that I cringe when I hear that because... That's as though we are training the child that the darker emotions, which are our great teachers, the darker emotions are unacceptable here. I only want smiles when I'm around. Uh, how crazy, how absurd, you know? Why not put your arm around the kid's shoulder and say, gee, you're feeling a bit blue today. I know what that feels like. I often feel like that. Let's talk about it. 
Yeah, yeah. I I find I've got my niece, my little two-year-old niece, and I find the thing that I say to her the most, because most of her tears are caused by not even pain, the thing that I end up saying to her the most when she's crying is, oh, you gave yourself a nasty shock. That was no, that was no fun. You know, just contextualising it without diminishing it maybe. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. That's lovely. But mm. it, it is it is this odd thing where they under the, the pursuit of happiness, this idea of the pursuit of happiness has simultaneously, I think, a really, really fundamental insight into um, human nature and then also complete blindness. We are built for pursuit. We are not built for happiness. We are actually built to to always be seeking something more than what we have. That is, you know, yeah. for a bit of evolutionary, hack evolutionary biology, yes. otherwise we don't survive. You know, we get to the top yeah. of one hill or we capture one animal or we build one fire and we don't go, well, that's me done and, you know, that's the end of my life. We are built yeah. for the next thing. And yes. to find a path, I think my idea of, of happiness or life or what it should be is to find a path that will consistently confront me with interesting problems that I can solve mm. forever. Which will en enrich the sense of your life's meaning and purpose um, and will bring you ever deeper satisfaction. And, and I, life satisfaction and the sense of a meaningful, uh, satisfying life has almost nothing to do with feeling happy. Uh, I mean, it, it, I remember some fascinating research, a Harvard researcher a few years ago published some research showing that parents are typically at their happiest when they are away from their children but that the richest sense of meaning in their lives is from parenthood. Now, that, that's a very interesting microcosmic example of this broader truth, that the things that bring us great life satisfaction don't necessarily make us happy. Uh, they may enrich our sense of meaning. Someone said, talking about all this recently to someone else, and they said, so, so Hugh, can money buy happiness? Uh, and I said, actually, yes, but that's about all it can buy, uh, and that's not the purpose of your life. So if you're saying, can money buy a sense of life's meaning or can money enrich your life satisfaction? No, but it can certainly bring you little bursts of bliss and a bit of retail therapy and all Sure. But, you know, happiness, mostly we know we're happy when it, when it leaves us, you know, the, the bluebird of happiness lands on your shoulder and you become conscious of it as it flies off to visit someone else. Well, even just in the most practical, pragmatic sense, my job is making people laugh and people can't, even in a, if you can't have people laughing for an hour at the same intensity, <laughs> for a whole, you cannot, right. from top to bottom, that would be torture if you were just cackling for a whole hour. 20 minutes, you can't, maybe five minutes you could have, just punchline, 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 punchline for the whole five minutes. Anything longer than that, you have to have a structure, you have to have high points, you have to have low points, you have to have mm. variation and texture. And it's so yes. it's so evident when you are performing 
because you feel that you feel the audience and you feel them as they respond or you know you can tell when a laugh is starting to get tired um and and that you need to change it up I think it's ridiculous to imagine that you could spend the rest of your life cackling wildly into the sunset Yeah. Well, forgive what sounds like flattery, but it, it but it you are actually brilliant at that. Uh, and it's the thing that I I mean, I, I get lots of laughs from your performances, but but the thing I most admire is that you take us into deep water, you take us into dark places so that the humor is correspondingly funnier because we're we're getting it in in contrast with other aspects of your of your narrative and that's a lovely picture of how life is you know we 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 this this the folklore says we grow through pain uh and how true that is when most people look back on periods of darkness in their life uh like a serious illness or a bereavement or a divorce or something else mostly people looking back on that will say it was a dreadful period. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I remember how dark it was. And I'm really grateful for it. It really taught me things about myself that I didn't know. The, the generation of Australians, now most of them dead, um, but in my research program I often came across them, who were young adults uh, establishing families and so on during the Great Depression. They virtually without exception, looked back on that and said it was absolutely terrible, deprivation, hardship, neighbours having to provide food for other people in the street who, who were unemployed and no, no social security like there is today. Uh, and weren't we lucky? Weren't we lucky to have had our values tempered and our priorities ordered by going through such a testing period. And that, that, of course, was followed by World War II, which was pretty testing too. So they, I wrote a book called Generations in, in the mid-90s when I was comparing baby boomers with their parents and their children. Uh, so the generation I'm talking about was typically the parents of baby boomers. And their self-description, which I pinched and dubbed them this in the book, was that they were the lucky generation. And other people look, how could you say you were the lucky generation when you lived through, uh, well, some of them lived through World War One, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression and World War Two, <laughs> and came out of it saying, weren't we lucky? Uh, and, and simultaneously saying, of course, you know, young people are having it too easy today and so on, you know, which brings us to the pandemic. Uh, and I think there will certainly be a pandemic generation who will look back and say, gosh, you know, I was unemployed for two years. I had to shut my business down. I'm, I'm not talking about people who've contracted the virus, but people who have had their uh, social and uh, economic lives really savagely impacted by this. There is no doubt in my mind that they're going to look back on this from the perspective of some point in the future and say that was really the making of us. You know, that was when we really figured out what really matters to us, what we real, what kind of people we want to be, what kind of life we want to lead. It does seem, it's a funny thing about humans, it does seem to take a bushfire or a flood or a pandemic or a personal trauma or something to shock us into raising some of those deep questions. Yes, it's very easy 
and I don't know if it always has been, but it's very easy nowadays, and I think it is more than it ever has been, to bury anything in forward momentum. You know, I think there are, I have a joke about it, which is that I think there are relationships that have been going for 10 years just because they have a similar taste in Netflix. You, you know, you, you can you see each other in the morning for half an hour, in the evening you watch the same show, maybe you go to a farmer's market on the weekend and that is your relationship with a partner. You know, that's not, to me, I think the fact that people are together now, forced together, or forced apart, they think about what they what they actually, or who they are to one another. I have friends mm. who've been stuck at home with their children, really for the first time. Mm. And the number of you know, I spend my days, I go for a walk, and the the number of fathers I see in the park with their children has quadrupled. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I think a lot of relationships have blossomed. Uh, and thrived and deepened as a result of having been uh, thrown together for protracted periods. And some others, of course, have completely fallen apart because they turned out to be uh, only to have Netflix in common, as you say. <laughs> Smoke and mirrors. And it is important as well. I, you know, I recently gave up my flat in London, but there are colleagues and friends of mine who are doing that London thing where you're sharing a flat with five other adults and they might have been technically living together for years and the horror of the pandemic for them was suddenly being shut in the house 24-7 all working at the same time trying to figure out how to negotiate Zoom calls with you know thin walls and and the frustrations of all being in this cramped space together and not having yes. any of the pleasures that are external, that are the point of London, you know, yes. galleries, theatre, cafes, restaurants, bars, everything has been shut to them. And those negotiations, the, the having to figure out how to live with someone who's annoying you, who's frustrating yes. you, who breathes wrong, like, <laughs> I think that's his really jaw, important. His jaw clicks when they eat. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's sort of one yeah. of the themes that runs through your novel particularly as well, mm. of figuring out yeah. how to how to not slide past those problems. Mm. Mm. Yeah, now that's a really, a really interesting example that you've given of people in a shared house in London. Um, uh, uh, Swinburne University in Victoria, have, uh, there's a Michelle Lim, a, a wonderful researcher who you should have tea with sometime, who's uh, really our expert in Australia on loneliness and the impact of social isolation. And we know social isolation is a real problem uh, for mental health and physical health. But the latest bit of research that, that they've done, uh, finding out how people are coping during lockdown uh, in Victoria, uh, the people who are doing best are those who are living in a family setting. The people who are doing worst are not those who are living alone, but those who are living in the kind of household you've just described, who are just a shared house with, with friends or colleagues or just flatmates who may not even be friends at all. And 
in, in, in exactly the way you've described, those households impose much greater strain on the people who are trying to rub along, uh, who ne never expected to be doing anything except eating and sleeping there and then going out and socialising, going to work and so on, suddenly finding that these people who you didn't really choose to live with, uh, you have to live with in very close uh, circumstances is very testing. And by the way, just an extension of that, this is why I think the neighbourhood is such a precious place. The neighbourhood, which I think we've rediscovered in the pandemic, I think a lot of people have realised, oh, there are all these other people in my immediate vicinity that I don't know very well. And, you know, that frail old lady at the end of the street, I've never actually stopped and said hello to her. Maybe I should. Um, and, and, yeah, indeed, maybe you should. Um, but I think that what's special about the neighbourhood, it's not nearly as claustrophobic as the shared house with a clicking jaw, but in the neighbourhood, in the street or the apartment block, we are in this extraordinary situation of living in very close proximity with people we didn't choose to live with, unless you're one of those strange people who interview everyone in the street before you buy or rent a house. Some people do that, um, but mostly we, we find the house we want to live in, we move in, and then we discover that there are all these other people who already live here and they are our neighbours and we are their neighbour. And some of them, they all seem strange at first in the same way as we seem strange to them at first. And some of them remain strange and, you know, for ethnic or religious or political or uh, aesthetic or cultural or other reasons, they're people we could never be friends with, but they are neighbours. And part of this thing, winding back to our earlier, the earlier part of the conversation, part of this thing of, of, of exercising the discipline of compassion, the test bed for that, I think the test bed of whether we're civilised human beings is whether we can function as neighbours among people who will never be friends. Yeah, the, the flatmate thing is this very proximate version of that. And it reminds me of a piece of information, you know, the theory of alpha males and beta males, it's language that is often used among men. Um, yes. That is based on a study in on wolves in captivity. So it, actually in the wild, wolves have completely different hierarchies and they tend to be uh -huh. much more family-based and they have this kind of pack structure that is much more cooperative and communitarian. Uh -huh. And so to me, I feel like within a family, there is that kind of clear hierarchy and relationships that you have and they might be troubled or, you know, combative yes. or particularly when young men reach a certain age, there's a phase where psychologically aware of it or not, you see that they become physically conscious that they could beat their fathers. Yes. And that's yes. a shift yes. in the power in the household, even if you've never had any violent interaction between father and son, as I think most yes. people haven't. Um, I think there's some some awareness there. But all of that stuff is much more cooperative than these kind of wolves in captivity that are share houses. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly, yes. By the way, you just used the word communitarian, which we haven't used until now. I think that's another way of describing the human species. We are by nature communitarians, and I think we have lost sight of that, particularly through the 20th century, Alice. I mean, 100 years ago, 
the typical Australian household contained three generations. The typical Australian household was somewhere between five to seven people. We've seen this dramatic, it, it's been gradual, it's taken 100 years to happen, but a very dramatic shrinkage of the Australian household. This average Australian household now is 2.5 people and the biggest single category, 25% of all Australian households are single person households. And that's also the fastest growing household type in Australia, projected to be every third household within the next decade or so. Now, that represents a huge challenge, not only for the people who are living alone or in two-person households, but to those who aren't, people who are living in larger households, to recognise that people who are living alone may not feel lonely. I mean, plenty of people who live alone love living alone, see it as an expression of freedom and independence and they can go out and socialise and you know, go to work and go to the theatre, do, do everything they and then they come home, shut the door, punch the air and say, alone at last, you know, this is my, this is my castle and I'm glad there's no one else here. But a lot of people who live alone, and I've talked to a lot of them over the years of research, don't feel like that. They've been pitchforked into solo living because of a relationship breakdown or a bereavement or moving to a strange city because of their work and, and taking a flat on their own or for some change in their circumstances, they find themselves living alone and they do often feel lonely as a result. So social isolation, it's interesting, there's a prominent American psychologist who's, who's made one of these famous statements that's, that's just become sort of part of the language of contemporary uh, social psychology, which is that social isolation is a greater threat to public health than obesity. And that's because social isolation is associated not just with anxiety and depression, but also with hypertension, inflammation, negative impact on the immune system, uh, uh, sleep deprivation, cognitive decline, addiction. There's a long list of things that you are more susceptible to if you're living alone because we are pack animals, because we are herd animals, because we're communitarians, to come back to your word. So living alone, lots of people love it, but it's not the absolutely natural state for human beings. And so, it might make you happy, but it might not be good for you <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yes it, it might be it, it might be self-indulgent uh and, and many people live their entire adult lives alone and they do love it uh and they might socialize and you know, be valuable members of their community i'm not criticizing people who prefer to live alone i'm just saying we have to acknowledge that there is an inherent risk that goes with living alone. There's a good reason why in our criminal justice system, solitary confinement is the worst punishment we can think of. Because for members of a social species, for, for herd animals um, to be cut off from the herd uh, is to be put at risk of these various mental and physical ailments. Well, uh, we should wrap this up. Where can people find your books? Where they, where can they support you? Do you have a website? All of that stuff. Oh, uh, well, I do have a website. It's uh, humorkay.com.au. Uh, and the two new books are 
the inner self is the nonfiction and the question of love, uh, which is a quirky little novel. Um, I, I, I love it. It's, it's, it's my fa the favourite of my novels. I really uh, enjoyed reading it. I, I read them both in the last two weeks uh, and I think they work really well as companion pieces to one another. I was interested oh, to, uh, to see whether you'd written them together, but you've written them sort of subsequent to one another and they do mesh yeah. really well. Well, th thanks, fellas. Anyway, they should be in all good bookshops. Well, actually, all good and bad bookshops. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having tea with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Alice. I appreciate your hospitality. Lovely rifle, doll, lovely rifle, 